Awesome. So we are officially live and good to go for episode six. So hi, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Vested Interest with Gorgeous. Uh, Vested Interest is an online pitch competition for DDC e-commerce brands. My name is Rohan. I manage our investor partnerships here, and we're super excited to be able to continue this series as a way to help companies scale. Uh, through five episodes, we've been able to line up 13 different conversations between investors and brands, which is a great stat and obviously looking forward to that continuing to trend up. And so for those who are unfamiliar, Gorgeous is an e-commerce focused help desk with deep integration, shop, Magento and big commerce. And we work with a ton of amazing brands all along the DC spectrum and that are potentially great fits uh, from an investment standpoint. And the format today is as follows. We will have three brands pitched to a panel of three investors slash platform directors. Each brand will have 10 minutes for their pitch and they'll be sharing a deck. They're welcome to share anything with respect to the background of their company, how much capital they're looking to raise, what they do with the capital, their revenue numbers, other statistics, so on and so forth. The investors on the panel will then have 10 to 15 minutes collectively to ask questions based on anything and everything that was either said or not said in the pitch. Super excited to announce that our official co-host for this episode is Clavio. Clavio is a growth marketing platform focused on helping e-commerce brands accelerate revenue using channels they own, like email, web, and SMS. Enabling companies to leverage these owned marketing channels, Clavio makes it easy to create highly targeted customer and prospect communications. Whether you're a brand who's just starting out or an iconic brand like Unilever, Custom Inc., or Tatcha, Clavio helps you grow your business. Clavio has over 500 employees globally and works with an impressive 50,000 brands. They're best known in the industry for their work in email marketing, but SMS, which is largely talked about these days, is now part of their offering. So their special offer today is 10% off their email product for the first six months that you use Clavio, and the promotion is offered exclusively in partnership with Vested Interest and for new customers to Clavio. You can email partners at Clavio to claim the offer and mention that you watched this episode, and we'll get all that information to you after this webinar as well. And for the panel, so today we have Hannah Shore, Platform Director at Graycroft, Adam Domian, GM and Head of Launchpad and Propulsion at M13, and Stephen Dober, Investor at Echo Capital. And so I'm gonna turn it over to each of them for some quick intros. And Hannah, would you mind kicking things off for us? Hi, my name is Hannah. I'm the Platform Director at Graycroft. Graycroft is an early to growth venture firm headquartered between New York and Los Angeles. And we invest in everything from seed through series C and D, investing out of our third growth fund and our sixth early stage fund. And we're sector agnostic, really with one uh, exception, we don't invest in biotech. And my role at Graycroft is to help accelerate and enhance our company's growth. So I work with our companies post-investment. Nice to meet you all. Thanks a lot, Hannah. Appreciate that. And uh, Adam, can you follow that up? Hi, everyone. My name is Adam Damian. Uh, as Rohan said, I lead our um, propulsion team, which is our platform team at M13, as well as our incubator, which we call our launchpad. Um, for those that don't know, M13 is an early stage venture fund uh, based in LA. We have a presence in San Francisco and New York as well focused on um, early stage consumer and consumer tech uh, companies. Relatively vertical agnostic, um, similar to Graycroft in that way, um, but generally with um, you know, a tech angle to, um, to what we invest in. 
um, but really focused on you know those intersections of changing consumer behavior. Um, so great to and it, uh, great to meet you all. Awesome, thanks a lot, Adam. And last but not least, Stephen. Great, I'm Stephen Dobbert, investor at Echo Capital Group. Or early stage investor focused on the consumer space, primarily on food and beverage. Uh, we're backed by the family that founded Hot Pockets. We look to invest in companies between 500,000 in revenue to 20 million in revenue, taking minority positions and leveraging our deep experience in food manufacturing to help those brands scale uh, with a specific focus within food and bev on. Uh, I'd say on um, plant-based, organic, gluten-free, uh, some of those better for you trends in that category. And I'm based in Denver and we have an office in Santa Monica. Awesome, thanks a lot, Steven. And on the brand side, again, three phenomenal brands. Our first one is Queen, pitched by Ali Bonaire and Eric Katz. Queen has made the first ever oat-based spread called granola butter. They're creating a new category within the spreads space and offering a delicious, healthy, allergen-free alternative to nut butter. Uh, they're looking to raise funds to expedite their crazy good growth and capitalize on their first mover's advantage. The second brand is Repurpose, pitched by Lauren Gropper. Repurpose is leading national brand of plant-based compostable tableware, and they're, in a, they're available in an impressive 15,000 locations nationwide. They strongly believe in plants over plastic and are doing everything they can to tackle plastic pollution with plant-based compostable alternatives. And finally, we'll have Jammy pitched by Oleg Demansky. Jammy Instruments is a music tech startup building and selling digital guitars that allows for translating guitar skills into any instrument to create uh, any genre. So anyone with even basic guitar playing skills can play the whole orchestra using just one instrument. Super cool. As for any hardware tech business, scalability is key and they're really looking to boost their already impressive efforts here. At the end of the three brands pitching, the investors and I will sync up to pick a winner based on the brand itself, potential for growth and overall likelihood to invest. Ongoing thank you to our partners who provide perks and discounts to the participating brands to anyone watching as well on Vested Interest, Sama Labs, Mute6, Rewind, BVA, InSocial, Attentive, Hashtag Paid, OmniSend, Bread, and Okendo. And in addition, we also have offers exclusive to the winner from Kinship, Kronos, SwayPay, and Class Rebel. Again, we'll get all these pieces of information out to everyone watching as well as the brands participating after the webinar. And finally, again, before I stop talking here, we have $120 Uber Eats vouchers to give away today. So Travis on my team will drop the code into the chat at some point during the webinar if he hasn't already. Uh, first come, first serve, so act fast and grab some late lunch if you're on the East Coast uh, and an early lunch if you're on the West Coast. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead and get started. So I'm gonna bring up Ali and Eric from Queen to get started. Can you hear us okay? Hey guys, how are you? I can hear you perfectly. Awesome, I will present. Great. You... Yeah, so the floor floor is yours, Ellie. Um, I'm just gonna start the timer. You have 10 minutes whenever, uh, whenever you wanna get going. Perfect, so let's just get this going. Oh, there we go. Eric's the tech, <laughs> tech guy. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for your time too. We're super excited to share what we're up to at Queen. And I think we should be good. Can you guys see now? 
Okay, perfect. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm Ali, this is Eric, and we make a product called granola butter. Um, you're probably wondering what the heck granola butter is, <laughs> so um, I will share more about it. But um, first, a little bit about us. So um, we actually met in college. We went to school together up in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley. Um, and really the idea for granola butter um, comes from my eating disorder recovery journey. So I struggled with food in my body for um, as long as I can remember um, since the womb, I always say. Um, and, you know, ironically was studying nutrition in college the entire time that I was really struggling. Um, and so as I graduated, you know, went into the working world, um, really just decided that it wasn't serving me anymore and, um, you know, wanted to cultivate a healthy relationship with food in my body um, and really just find food freedom and, you know, fun in the kitchen again. Um, and so as I started to implement a lot of foods back into my diet that I had restricted heavily for years, um, you know, part of that journey was eating my fear foods. And um, a couple of my fear foods were nut butters, so peanut butter and almond butter, I had restricted heavily for years. Um, and as I started to add them back in, I noticed, you know, a lot of digestive issues and I was just feeling really weighed down um, because my gut health was just really a wreck, you know, from years of treating my body like crap. And so in the meantime, started looking for something nut free um, that I could, you know, sort of substitute for my peanut butter, almond butter addiction um, and really didn't find anything out there on the market that you know, number one tasted good because um, that's always very important with food, right? And number two had the nutritional profile to sort of back it up and, you know, really make my body feel um, and work at its best. Um, so the options were really, you know, sunflower seed butter, Trader Joe's cookie butter, um, which tasted amazing, but I didn't feel so hot after half a jar. Um, and so, you know, really landed on this idea of an oat-based spread. Um, and oats are super, you know, were easy for me to digest, um, tasted delicious, and I had seen just the explosion of, you know, the oatlies of the world and sort of all these oat milks coming on the scene. Um, and then what really sealed the deal was, you know, seeing that a lot of the schools now are going towards nut-free. So you see a lot of peanut and tree nut-free um, schools, especially elementary schools. And so we saw a huge opportunity for, you know, um, parents, even if their kids didn't have nut allergies, they were really struggling to find an alternative to, you know, a PB&J in their lunch. Um, and so that's where granola butter was born. And we launched in March of 2018 um, and actually worked on it for about a year, um, just nights and weekends. So I was, Eric and I were both working in tech. Um, I was in health tech and he was in consulting for a company called Accenture. Um, and we were just grinding, you know, literally and figuratively grinding that butter um, nights and weekends. And then we went full time about a year ago. Um, so a little bit, yeah, the team, as we mentioned, so my background is really, you know, marketing, PR, um, branding, all of that good stuff. And then Eric's more technical um, and his experiences in, um, you know, consumer and tech sort of lean product and user centered design. Um, and then Ari is not here today. He's our third co-founder. He's you know, heading up the kitchen right now, but um, him and Eric went to summer camp together growing up. And, you know, we really wanted to bring someone on who had a true kind of deep culinary experience. Um, obviously, we're both foodies, but, you know, the early stages of granola butter were just throwing granola into our Vitamix. <laughs> it was total trash. It was not sellable. Um, and so we knew we had to bring someone on who, you know, really was our culinary genius. And so Ari's worked at multiple Michelin star restaurants and um, he's really the one that created the recipe that we use today. 
So a little bit about our customer. Um, so she is, you know, a parent, um, has kids that, you know, are in a nut-free school or potentially have nut allergies themselves, um, and is really just looking for something that, you know, her kids enjoy the taste of. I think the biggest hurdle with some of the other nut-free spreads on the market, you know, sun butter, soy nut butter, is they just don't taste good, um, especially for kids, you know, being super picky. I think once you try granola butter, you'll understand it's very um, approachable from a kid's standpoint. It sort of tastes like those cinnamon Teddy Grahams, if you remember those. So um, really delicious, you know, but still low in sugar. It's only about three grams of sugar for two tablespoons. Um, so it's something that, you know, both kids enjoy and parents feel really good about giving um, to their family. So um, Liz is definitely one side of the customer demographic. We also have a segment that is like a health conscious millennial. Um, so before launching Queen, as I mentioned, I struggled with, you know, eating disorder recovery and actually built a pretty big following on Instagram, um, just documenting my journey. And so um, we do have a big, you know, subset of our customer base that really resonates with, you know, the body positivity side of things, um, as well as just a brand new spread on the market that they haven't seen before. Um, and as I mentioned, the problem is really, you know, um, an allergen friendly snack that is not only delicious, but also has clean ingredients um, and that, you know, her kids like the taste of. So as you can see, lots of peanut butter, tree nut butter, um, soy nut is another common one, um, but a lot of people are avoiding soy now. Um, and then sun butter we find to just be, you know, a little bit bitter. So solution granola butter, um, as you can see with our ingredients, um, everything is super simple. Our base is really oats, so we use purity protocol, gluten-free oats, um, and then flax actually really gives it this sort of nutty, um, creamy consistency, so it really has the texture of an almond butter or a peanut butter, um, but it's totally nut-free, which many people are surprised to learn. Um, and then olive oil and coconut oil, you know, um, are sort of our our mainstays we definitely wanted to use a you know healthier plant-based oil um, that wasn't highly refined like a canola oil or something like that um, and we actually use an allergen free coconut oil so um, during processing they remove all the allergenic proteins making it totally safe for anyone with allergies to consume yep so as ali mentioned uh, we launched in early 2018 um, and we had some early success, especially with um, Allie having a, an audience on Instagram. Uh, this year, we're on track to do 1.2 million, and that's split about 50% uh, D to C, 35% through retail, um, as well as 15% through food service. So on the retail front, we're now sold in four regions of Whole Foods, and then a number of other national uh, uh, grocery stores, um, and then on the food service side, we are topping nationally at Press Juicery. Um, and then in terms of our margin on D to C, our margin is about 40 to 60% delivered to the customer, depending on tax size, um, and through distributors and retail, we're at around 35%. Yeah, and this has all been um, bootstrapped to date. So we haven't raised any outside capital, um, all self-funded, and we've done very limited um, you know, paid advertising. We just started doing some digital ads um, starting in May. So we did like, you know, really small tests, like $100 a day. Um, so a lot, most of our growth has actually been all organic, just through word of mouth and um, influencer marketing and organic social. 
Perfect. And then I just wanted to touch on uh, how big the nut butter category is. So it's obviously a $4 billion category. And the majority of that is peanut and almond butter. But there are some very good signs for us uh, as customers are seeing non-peanut and non-almond butters um, as also options for people without allergies. Um, and more and more people are consuming non-seed butters. Yeah, and something we're really excited about with granola butter is really bridging the gap between these two existing markets. So, you know, the first being, as Eric mentioned, people with nut allergies, you know, their only option right now is a seed butter or a soy nut butter or something that's really marketed as nut-free. Um, but then there's also the people that, you know, like myself, I don't have nut allergies, and so I tend to go for the peanut butters and almond butters of the world. Um, but granola butter is really bridging that gap. So we see, you know, obviously our customer base that is nut-free, that is really excited to have a good tasting spread, but also, you know, tons of customers are topping their smoothie bowls with both almond butter and granola butter. Um, so we really think we can capture both of those groups. Yep, and then I, I don't think we're limited to the nut butter category. So we're looking at extensions both within the nut butter category, so launching into single serving squeeze packs, similar to Justin's, and then beyond nut butters, um, just like Justin's did with confections, snack packs, so launching a granola butter uh, cup or uh, a granola butter bar. Um, and I really think that there are endless options for us to really extend their our line and anywhere that you see a nut butter or a cookie butter um, you can plug granola butter into. Yeah, and a huge food service play too. You know, I think this will be obviously down the line for us as we scale and sort of can be more competitive on pricing. But I mean, I think the biggest opportunity is really within the school systems themselves. So, um, you know, really replacing sun butter as a better tasting um, healthy option. Yep, and then in terms of the raise, we're currently raising million dollars. Um, that will be split. Uh, those proceeds will be split across these three areas. So on the team front, we really want to bring on somebody who has deep expertise and can build out a national sales strategy, uh, someone who has built uh, e-commerce businesses for other CPG companies and can do the same here. Um, and then making sure that we're putting dollars into both D2C and in-store growth. Um, on the advertising and marketing side. And then also we do manufacture everything in-house. Um, so uh, we do want to invest in line automation as well as uh, moving into a new facility to support scale. Awesome, thank you guys so much for your time. <laughs> that was great, uh, like 10 minutes basically right on the dot. Thanks for the presentation. Oh yeah, you had one set there. Okay, good, good. Like, We've had some presentations yeah. in the past go over. Uh, mm -hmm. Awesome, that was a great presentation. Really appreciate it uh, from the both of you. So we'll open up the floor for questions and you know, Adam, Hannah, Stephen, whichever one of you wants to get started. Uh, yeah, I got a question right off the bat here. I, I wanted to know what barriers do you guys have on granola butter that would prevent private label from making a competing product? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you can talk to IP. Yeah, so we do have a patent filed since we are the first uh, ever uh, creators of granola butter. Um, but that said, um, the majority of manufacturers do not uh, process their foods in a nut-free facility. So all of the granola, large granola manufacturers 
and then the majority of the spread manufacturers use make nut butters as well. Um, so there is a significant barrier to entry um, in order to make something that is nut free and competes in this space. Is that? A, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just to double click on that, I had a, a question in the similar space. So, um, in terms of barriers and moat that you're you're building, so certainly the sort of barrier for competition to come in based on nut-free facilities that you were talking through is helpful. Um, but specifically on the the patent, like what are what are the patent attorneys? Not to get super granular, but like what are the patent attorneys or um that you're using like what's the likelihood that that comes through based on the the ip that you in the process um in looking at the materials it looks like the the patents are around the process that you put it through so what's the likelihood <laughs> that they're indicating i mean we we can chat more about the patent offline if you'd like but um we filed for both a product and a process patent um there's different likelihoods that we get one uh the other or both, um, but there is also some precedent as uh, Lotus previously had an international patent actually for uh, cookie butter. Um, so, you know, I think you could look into that if you're interested in that. There's some scandal around it because they didn't actually uh, create the patent. They took it from somebody else in a competition uh, and that party actually sued them and nullified the patent, but there is precedent because they did get a patent for that initially. Yeah, and so really in the meantime, I mean, we're obviously just focused on, you know, building our brand and our loyal community base. Um, and, you know, similar to Oatly, I think competition isn't, you know, the worst thing. If other granola butter players enter the space, I think it builds the the market. But also, you know, Oatly has a huge, you know, customer base because they were the first. And um, so, yeah, just capitalizing on first movers advantage and, you know, creating that loyal, loyal customer base. Um, I really had a question about your marketing for a sec. So you said mentioned a lot of it is done organically and through an influencer strategy. How are you, and none of it has really been paid, what are your future plans? And also, how are you collecting customer data? Definitely, yeah. So yeah, you're completely right. Um, everything has really been organic and um, you know, kind of using my um, my connections on the influencer side of things, um, which you know we realize isn't, super scalable. So with the raise, we want to bring someone on um, who has deep experience in, you know, e-com and D to building those D2C channels for other CPG food companies. Because, um, you know, to date, as I mentioned, Eric and I are pretty much just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks in terms of Facebook ads. Um, and we've been really excited about, you know, the first um, small test we've been doing on cold traffic and retargeting. Um, we've seen break even or even higher on for sale. Um, and so our ROAS is, you know, above what we've been seeing for industry standard. Um, and also testing out, um, you know, in the retail side of things, using geotargeting and Facebook and Instagram ads to sort of make up for the, the loss of sampling and demoing in stores. Um, and then in terms of customer data, do you want to say Yeah, that? I mean, I think especially on the influencer side, it, it does get hard, especially when they're not using uh, specific links to track where those customers are coming from. Uh, we've been doing our best, uh, especially when we, we know that we have specific uh, peaks due to certain uh, influencers posting and just tagging in our data that um, those customers on that specific day are likely from a specific influencer.
Thanks. Ellie, you were talking about um, the different consumers, um, sort of consumer targets, and one seems to be sort of built off the brands that you've built with your Instagram following. Um, and then the other is sort of this like mother, um, uh, mother that has concerns about nuts, either allergens for her children or the fact that just from a practical standpoint, she can't send her kids to school with um, nut butters. And so as you think about growing this and, you know, where the focus, it's generally tough to have two, you know, broad targets. So as you think about scaling this into additional channels and outside of sort of your ether into more of the paid channels and more broadly, how are you thinking about those two living together and how do you think about the brand evolution as you focus on one or the other? Maybe they live together in your minds, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you're completely right. Like, it's definitely hard to kind of, you know, cater to both groups. Um, obviously, the millennial, you know, crowd is a lot different voice and, you know, than kind of the nut-free mom, <laughs> mommy bloggers. Um, and so, yeah, for us, it's really been, you know, subtly shifting over to targeting parents. Um, I think those are going to be our our customer, you know, as we grow and as we really want to become a household brand um, and something that, you know, is just as common in people's pantries as peanut butter. Um, so I guess really for long-term vision too, you know, we want to get to a place where we can scale and really be competitive price-wise with, um, you know, a peanut butter or even a lower cost almond butter. Um, just because we realize right now, you know, granola butter is obviously on the higher end for, for the parents that are using it weekly in their kids' lunches. Um, so even entering conventional channels like Target and Kroger down the line, um, even with maybe a conventional non-organic skew, so like a natural granola butter um, that we'd be able to price a little more competitively. But um, yeah, definitely shifting things over to target more um, the parents and you know kids in nut-free schools. Um, and um, we think that millennials are obviously you know a great target market to have, but they're a little bit more sort of like on to the next, like they love the hot new things, you know, and then it's like, you know, their retention rates, I think are a little bit lower where with parents, it's like you get them hooked and you know, the virality within like the mom word of mouth sphere is um, also really helpful. And they're mm -hmm. also, you know, going to be repeat customers um, once if their kids like it. Helpful. I had a Thank you. question on uh, on manufacturing. You seem to be doing it all in-house right now. Can you I guess, talk to you in a little more detail about what you're going to do to automate the process and, and what that's going to do to your margin profile? Yeah, definitely. So currently, um, everything is semi-automated. So we're even mixing things by hand. Uh, we're filling jars one at a time. Um, and so really with automation, um, with the same staff that we have, we could be doing five plus X. So looking at like automated filling, capping, sealing, labeling, um, and mixing. Um, and then in terms of what that'll do to our margin. So um, currently we're in a 10 ounce jar. We're, we're actually working to launch a slightly larger jar. Um, and with that, we should be able to keep our, uh, margins the same that they are today. Um, and once we start moving, you know, into larger scale ordering, um, we can even boost our, um, boost our margins with a larger jar. Awesome. 
Awesome. Last chance for any more questions here. I just, um, I know you've mentioned that you're expanding nationally with Whole Foods, right? Um, can you, and you're bringing, you want to bring on a sales um, rep with the round. Can you talk about more whether that's, are you looking for the sales rep to expand into other groceries like Albertsons and Kroger, or is it really to drill down on how the merchandisers are working with you at Whole Foods? What's the, what's your goal with that hire? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am a sales team <laughs> to date. Um, and yeah, we basically just started with one region of Whole Foods, um, you know, when we were working on this part time and then have since launched into three additional regions um, in the past few months. And so it's just, you know, been really tough with me not having any, you know, food industry sales experience, um, you know, not working with brokers and all of that. So I think bringing someone on who, you know, is obviously really scrappy and sort of has that startup mentality, but also has, you know, the deeper food industry experience. Um, and the goal for us is really to, you know, now that we're opening up those DCs through UNFI and other distributors um, because of Whole Foods being our anchor account, really expanding into that region with, you know, other smaller chains. So in the East Coast, it's Roche Bros and Fairway and stuff like that. Um, and then also help, you know, having that sales hire really help us increase our natural channel velocity. So, you know, really getting that cranking and like you said, merchandising and kind of customer education there. Um, and then we would say in probably a year or two, starting to think about conventional and club and entering those channels. Yeah, I think this round is really about us building that foundation um, and then locking in some of those larger conventional accounts and going ahead and raising our next round uh, to support that launch um, as those channels are also a little more expensive. Cool. Great. Should we wrap it up there? Adam, Stephen, one last thought. You good to go? Good to go. Thanks awesome. for sharing the story, though. It's helpful to hear the background. Uh, yeah, thank you guys. Thank you. It's really incredible yeah, what you guys have built. Thanks. Thank you. We'll get you samples. <laughs> Look at that. Great. great start to the great start to the webinar. Thanks a lot, Ali and Eric. That was a phenomenal presentation and a Q and A period as well. Great questions from from the panel too. Uh, so for now, what's going to happen? I'm just going to kick you off stage. Unfortunately, I'm going to bring up Lauren for repurpose, but. Uh, We'll announce the winner at the end and obviously communicate the benefits to you guys after uh, the show ends. Cool. Thanks a ton, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna bring up Lauren from Repurpose now. Lauren, you should get an invite on your screen. Great start to the webinar. Couple of new customers in the chat as well, so that's obviously huge. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hey, Lauren. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. How's it going? Hi, Lauren. Hi, Stephen. We met years ago. We did, yes. Yeah. Project Knock. Yeah. yeah. Good to see you. Yes, yeah, good to see you. Yeah. Look at that. Small world. So is this little cool. icon with the arrow, the present? Okay, great. You got it. Yeah. So it's on the far right there. And um, the floor is yours. So as soon as you get your screen up, I'll start the 10-minute timer, and you're good to go. Okay. okay, can everybody see that? Yes. Beach ball. Okay. 
Hi, everybody. Thank you, Rohan, and thank you guys for the time. Super excited to chat with you today. I'm Lauren Groper, and I'm founder and CEO of Repurpose, and we make plant-based alternatives to plastic and styrofoam tableware. So we've been around actually since the end of 2010, so it's been a long journey. Um, I've been obsessed with sustainability my whole career. Before this, I was doing sustainable design and architecture, so building green buildings, which I did mostly in New York, um, and then had an opportunity to come to LA about 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, to do um, green set design. So I was doing um, film and TV sets that were state-of-the-art sustainable, um, and using plastic bottles all day, every day, and forks, and takeout containers, and it just felt like this is wrong. <laughs> How are we building this super sustainable set and then using these products? And given sort of the design background I have, I was just obsessed with the idea of sort of circular economy and thinking about what kind of materials could we use that could replace all this plastic stuff. It just didn't make any sense to me to be using petroleum, which is used to make plastic, which is actually designed to last forever um, for a throwaway product. So that was kind of, that was the impetus and the spark. And I just, I was 10 years younger and I felt like, you know what, I can do it. Um, I really wanted to get into this category and get into uh, sustainable design in a product. And I love the idea of replacing plastic with something super sustainable that was plant-based and non-toxic. And I love the idea of creating a brand. So I had sort of done a ton of research into this space from you know the technology to the manufacturers to really what was happening. And, and the area that really appealed to me was CPG. And this was me not knowing anything about CPG at the time, um, but really felt like you know, the, this, this category is just so old and it's all these legacy players just making plastic crap. And, you know, there's just every other category has these amazing new brands that are really taking market share and we could do the same thing. So that was the impetus and that was almost 10 years ago. So I'm going to tell you all about the journey. Um, so our mission is really all about plants over plastic. Um, all of our products are made from plants. So we use corn, sugarcane, uh, bamboo, cassava, which is like a, like a root, and beet pulp residue. Uh, we're the leading and the only national brand in our subcategory, um, and we're available in over 15,000 locations, everything from Walmart and Target to CVS, Whole Foods, um, and everything in between. We're tackling the plastic problem, which thankfully everybody is very aware of these days. Um, by 2050, there actually will be more plastic than fish in the ocean, which is obviously needs to be changed by companies like us and everybody else tackling this issue. And the great news is that this is an issue that Americans really care about and feel they can actually make a positive impact with. So it's not this existential dread. It's let's do something about this. This is a problem and repurpose is one of the solutions. So we are a zero waste solution. Like I said, we make all of our products from plants. Um, we then create our products, which can then be composted back into the soil and be used to grow plants again. So that is the ideal circular economy zero waste solution. This is our current product line. We have over 15 SKUs. We usually go in with about eight to 10 SKUs. Um, on our uh, core line, which is really what you see here is the disposable compostables. We've got a 44% margin. 
In 2020, we launched a reusable line, which is also entirely plant-based. It's meant to replace plastic that you would use to feed your kids with at home. And that has a 65% margin that's sold entirely online. So that's not in retail distribution. All of our other products are in retail distribution. So it's a $7.5 billion category that is just tableware in retail in the US. Um, and the eco portion of that is growing at four and a half times that of the conventional, of which we are really providing that growth. Um, so our growth trajectory has been pretty amazing. We've grown 10x since 2013, and we're growing, as I said, at 4.5x the category, and over twice as fast as the leading legacy tableware brands. So we are bringing this uh, accretive growth to a very, very stale category. Um, so just some overall numbers here. In the last few years, we've gone from a modest 5,000 doors to over 15,000 at the end of 2019. We had five team members for a very long time, and we're now over 22. Um, we actually uh, grew our margin at the same time that we grew our top line. So we went from 35 to 44. Um, we've jumped heavily in revenue, as I mentioned, 10x since 2013. Um, last year was a banner year for us. We uh, exceeded 10 million in annual sales, 10.6 million. Um, so we're super excited about that. We actually have 25 live SKUs. That represents different iterations of current and different packouts, but the core line is really 15. And you know, we are a company that's all about doing well by doing good. So we track all of our our impact stats from waste out of landfills to greenhouse gases reduced. Um, and we track this as we grow. So as we grow and we replace plastic, we are actually making a positive impact. Um, as I mentioned, we're the number one brand in eco tableware. We hold 77% market share. Um, and through COVID from 2019 to 2020, as of July, we are the fastest growing versus all of these conventional brands as well. So we've exceeded category significantly through these challenging times. Um, part of this is that sustainability has really moved from being a perk to a priority, especially in our category. I think part of this is we've been uh, experiencing tailwinds from some of the legislation in terms of plastic bag bans and straw bans, um, but just people's consciousness around plastic and why it's bad and plastic in the ocean has just increased so much. In addition to the fact that sort of our core demo, the, the millennial mom has aged into the category. And so those factors have really given us just this incredible advantage. Um, we are totally an omni-channel brand. This is our current retail mix. Um, we're across all channels, grocery, mass, drug, natural, e-com, and we're actually going to club for 2021. So um, very excited we will be launching in one region of Costco, Costco Bay Area. Um, we're activating heavily in the digital grocery boom, as we all know this is happening right now. Um, Walmart Plus with Walmart.com, just an emerging e-com giant. Amazon, for us it's core and it's underutilized, so we've actually brought somebody in-house full-time to um, really, really regenerate our Amazon business. Um, Target.com, a demographic bullseye for us, and we're experimenting heavily on Shift and Instacart. We're actually seeing 6x raws on Instacart right now, so it's a great platform for us and just, just turnkey opportunity to scale. 
we've done quite a bit in terms of telling our story, earned, owned, and paid. Really, this is um, the earned piece here. Um, we've had a lot of national exposure. We do organic social. We do product placement through some of my connections in film and TV. Um, we're a direct consumer as well. So I'm really happy about where we stand in kind of this landscape, but there's always room to do more. Um, as I mentioned, historical revenue, just want to, to show the margin growth here from 29 in 2014 to 44 in 2019. This was 2019. I'd like to show this because we exceeded our budget. <laughs> we, um, we had about 9 million in budget. We did 10.6. So that was, as I mentioned, just a great year for us. Um, here are projections. So revenue for 2020, 12.4. Um, we have been affected by COVID a little bit. Um, mostly in that our category um, is, our, our buyer is really the same buyer as uh, hand sanitizer and, and toilet paper. And so we have not been able to get the resets that we've uh, were originally committed and those have been pushed to 2021. Um, and so several rollouts were supposed to happen or SKU swaps just didn't. Um, and so velocity on shelf is great. We've actually seen an increase, but it's, it's those resets that have been stalled or pushed to 2021. And we see a really nice turnaround in 2021. We are moving toward profitability, which is really exciting for us after so many years in the red <laughs> and um, hitting another milestone of 20 million. Awesome um, team. Obviously we couldn't do what we do without the team we have. I just want to highlight some of, of the management. Um, you know, when I started, I didn't have any of the CPG experience. So we've had to bring in um, real veterans on, on the board, especially on the CPG side. So that's George and Blair, who are both directors and both have significant experience um, and awesome investors that we have to date. Amanda, who's also a director from Toonhouse, the letter series A, um, Sonia from Pritzker and Duncan and Brain from Breakout. We've done quite a bit of brand and category expansion over the years. Um, in 2018, the big one was straws. That was actually a huge moment for us because we had these straws and this was when kind of the straw bands were happening. And so that actually was kind of the spark for us getting into Walmart and CVS and some of these retailers we've been knocking on doors for several years. They started with our straws and then brought in the whole line. Um, we then in 2019 extended to trash bags. We've seen huge success there um, and continue to push that across our, our um, distribution footprint. And then in 2020, we launched these the reusable line. So we are now going to be doing even more now for holiday. This is an amazing gift. And if you guys want some freebies, happy to share. Um, it's amazing if you have kids or have friends with kids. So this is our Series A Prime, we're actually raising right now. Um, we've raised 10 million since 2011. Um, our Series A was done in 2019, we raised 5 million and it was 21.2 post. This is our Series A Prime, uh, we're raising 4 million on a 32.4 pre. We've actually, this has now ticked up 2.4 million already committed and, and collected from existing investors. So we are looking for strategic exit, although these days public markets are, are looking attractive as well. Um, and these are just some of the uh, potential um, companies that we think could be a fit, um, some of whom we already have existing relationships with, uh, but definitely fit right into to these portfolios. So very excited about that. We, we believe we will be an attractive uh, acquisition target in the next two to three years. 
And that is us. So I'm going to I figure out how to stop sharing. I don't know. Just a moment. I'm just beach bowling. Should be the same button down below. Okay. Just a second. Super, super impressive uh, presentation there, Lauren. That was great. And uh, same thing as last time. I'm going to pause here and let, uh, let the panel ask some questions here. Sure. Lauren, this is Adam. Um, I love this space um, that you're operating in. I've uh, worked on a number of brands focused on ocean plastic and um, recycled plastic in the past yeah. in my former life um, with Unilever. Um, so I love this space. What within sort of ta the tabletop category in which you're operating today, like obviously that's a big private label and big existing players. How like how are they responding to this sort of broader trend around sustainability, consumers' desire for more sustainability and less plastic and less waste? Are they, how, yeah, how are they responding to the category? Um, so they are very slow on their feet. Uh, it's been this year that we've seen some activity. Um, so Reynolds, who has Hefty, basically rebranded their paper plates um, and are now calling them Hefty EcoSave. So you may have seen them. I've seen them at Albertsons, and um, it's what they have existing. But they're seeing obviously, oh, if I if I put a big leaf on this and call this EcoSave, um, but that's really the plates and bowls piece. Just to give you category breakdown, plates and bowls are about sixty percent of the category. Uh, revenue for us as well. That's 60% of our growth is is plates and bowls. And that's kind of the easiest entry point because you can use a number of different feedstocks. You really can use any kind of like paper fiber replacement, but we're not seeing innovation like on straws or bags or, um, you know, cups. Those are much more difficult to make. There are very few converters doing that. It's more expensive. It cannibalizes their existing business. So we are seeing some activity on the plates. Um, Target has done a household sustainability line. You may have seen Everspring. They're cleaning. It's cleaning candles. Our category, um, I believe they're moving into baby. Um, we actually outsell Everspring. So we get the, all the Target POS data, and we've been able to outsell them. They've got plates and bowls as well. They're not doing cups or anything like that. So that's interesting. I think I think where we're see, we're going to see competition obviously is plates and bowls. Um, mm -hmm. Safeway's got some open nature, um, though they've had some a lot of supply issues. So we've actually replaced their open nature in a number, like all the open nature SKUs. Um, so yes, it's popping up. Um, what we're what we're sort of our strategy is that you know. We see this as just obviously like in my vision in 10 years, the whole category is going to be sustainable in some way or another, but that we will be acquired or join forces with one of the other bigger players to kind of go against, like if it's us and Reynolds against George Pacific or, you know, us and Hudamaki, which is Chinette against, you know, Reynolds, whatever it is, there's like six key players. So one of them will, we would want to align with. None of them have any kind of like, it's just so behind the curve in terms of like a modern day engaged CPG brand. <laughs> like none of them are at all. None of them are. So I think we've got that advantage. We understand the customer and that's our focus. And I just think that for the time it is now, we're really 
we're in a great position and to be able to kind of combine our strengths with theirs to, to really take on the categories and we'll and continue to lead. Cool. Yeah. Helpful. Hi, I really, I love the product. I think it's such a good idea for everyone who hates bringing plates and yeah. such to the office or disposable. Um, I did have a question, I'm sorry if I missed this, but with how it's compostable, do you have to put it in a compost or what happens when it's into, put into trash cans? And then how does that, the tack onto that is, what does that look like from a customer education perspective? Yes, so there are many sort of legal issues around this. So. Half of our products are what you call biodegradable, meaning you can put them in a landfill, you can put them in a backyard compost and they will break down. It is illegal to say biodegradable in California because everything is biodegradable, your house, your table, this computer, um, technically. So in order to have a unified standard, it has to be compostable in an industrial facility within 180 days at XYZ temperatures, levels of oxygen, et cetera. So, that is the, the wide certification that everybody has to use. So you have to label your product saying, this is industrially compostable, it meets these regulations, and here's the seal to show it, like organic, the USDA organic, okay? So we can't say backyard, and we can't say um, biodegradable. So the education is really key here, because no, everyone's confused. What do I do? Do I put this in my backyard? Can I do I put it in the landfill? What do I do? So Ideally it goes into a green bin. It's taken to a municipal compost. That's the least confusing It breaks down and that's that if you put it in a landfill it will act like other um, Organic material, but it landfills are designed today modern landfills that nothing breaks down so they're essentially deprived of oxygen so that what they can do is convert any gases that are released into a natural gas. So they'll convert like the methane in a landfill to natural gas. So if you go into a landfill, it doesn't break down, but it's not designed to, it will be converted into natural gas. If you put it in your backyard, depending on where you are, um, like if you're in Alaska, it's obviously different than if you're in Florida, um, but it will break down. <laughs> Just, a, I can't, I don't know the timing, um, and legally we can't say, oh, it's gonna be, XYZ, but it should be no longer than three to six months. Um, but the way that the compost industry works is it has to be compostable within 90 to 120 days because that's when they turn over their soil and that's how they sell it and it's gotta be totally gone. So I know that's what we communicate to the customer really is this is so confusing, we know it is. Try to put it in your industrial composter. If you have to put it to a landfill, it's still a product that has 65% less CO2 than a plastic product. So you're still making the sustainable choice even if you can't compost. That's sort of the simplest. Sorry, I know that's like the most convoluted, but. No, that's super helpful. Thank you. I had a question on your, your e-commerce strategy. You said you were going to build out Walmart, Amazon, Target. Now, I, I know since a lot of our brands sell on a lot of those channels, uh, there's definitely pricing pricing competition between the three of those platforms. So I just wanted to know how you're going to navigate that and what your strategy is to, to sell on each one. Yeah, so right now for us, the lead and the, the behemoth is Amazon. Um, the strategy on Amazon is we've got two SKUs that are kind of our heroes. One is our cold cups. We've got over 1,500 positive reviews, um, four, over four-star reviews. And so that leads the charge, and that will kind of Amazon will get and own that one. Um, trash bags were also Amazon's choice, for Whole Foods Amazon's choice. So Amazon gets those ones. Amazon kind of gets 
for these sort of like everyday essentials that are convenience, could be subscription, et cetera, Amazon gets per, like preferred. Um, we're essentially doing it where we, we sell different SKUs to each or different packouts, which is kind of a bit of a supply chain headache, but kind of is the only way we've been able to figure out how to deal with it. Um, for e-com, our own e-com, it's like exclusives, it's, it's bundles, it's also subscription, but for us, I think Amazon is really like going to be a key player. Thank you. Yeah. Lauren, you mentioned a, a couple of different raw ingredients, the plant-based material. How, how do you use those differently? Is it based on supply? Is it based on the different products require different uh, yeah. inputs? How does that work? It's based on the products. Certain products require different inputs. So our plates and bowls, for example, it's, it's molded fiber. So it's actually our most sustainable product because we're using the waste of the sugarcane industry. So they use the juice of the cane and then they usually burn the actual cane, the stock, or they just dispose of it. And we buy back that cane and then grind it up. And that becomes our plate and bowl. It's like paper mache that's molded. So that's amazing for us because we're taking what we waste and making it useful and upcycling it. Um, the other products, depending on kind of the, the compound mixture and what it is, um, like if you need full clarity, like our cold cups, they're fully clear. Um, that's going to be corn. If you can have some kind of like opacity, um, that's going to be cassava, beet pulp residue, and corn, like utensils. Um, films, which are straws, also have opacity and, and um, trash bags, and that's beet pulp residue, cassava, and corn. Um, and the mix just depends on like availability of what what the availability of each of those feedstocks. Um, but each of those are, are what we use. Um, and then on the reusables, it's bamboo, um, sugarcane, cassava, and corn. Got it. And so in the, the manufacturing process, like what does that supply chain look like then? I assume you're bringing that in from various regions and then do you, is it one manufacturer that you're using or multiple? Yeah, so we um, we kind of use a network under one umbrella in Taiwan. We've been with the same Taiwanese partner since pretty much day one. They're exclusive to us. One of our founding partners is um, the nephew of the owner of the R&D company and, and the converter. And so we work with six different actual plants because each one specializes. So one does molded fiber, one does injection molding, one does thermoforming, another one does blow molding. They all kind of do one thing. And, and so we've been able to sort of rely on each of those and grow different SKUs out of each of those specific relationships, but it's really all done through this Taiwanese partner. Um, so, and then the feedstocks primarily come from Asia. Some of the corn actually does come from the US. It's the resin that's made in the US and then, and then sent to Asia. So yes, we'd love to do it in the US. We would love to <laughs> manufacture in the US. Um, and we actually are looking at some opportunities in Central America and Mexico. Um, currently, just like insurance, labor, et cetera, are too expensive in the U.S., but we would love to be in the U.S. So down the road. Okay. I got a, a quick question. With the, the Costco Bay Area rollout in 2021, is that an in and out or is that an everyday item? 
everyday items. So we are wow. we have one one item, <laughs> but our bowl is going to replace Dixie. So Dixie out, repurpose in. Um, super excited because this item code can go everywhere. Um, we maintain decent margin. It's an awesome bowl. It's actually the number one selling bowl in Target right now because better than any any conventional. It's, it's so nerdy tableware, but you know, most bowls you get are really shallow and deep, or sorry, really shallow and wide, and ours is, is more narrow and deep. I know that's crazy, but it, it's a- you, uh, Do you have any projections uh, or expectations from the Costco buyer on kind of what they're looking yes. for in terms of dollars per week? Yeah, so it's basically $10,000 per item per building per month. Okay. Yeah. Sold. So, you know, MSRP sales. So yeah, it's it's about a seven million annualized item for Bay Area only. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Have about just over two minutes left. If anyone has a final thought, if not, then, uh, then we can definitely move on. Lauren, I'd be curious um, if looking at your sort of innovation, your future innovation, you're going into reusables, most of it's sort of tabletop house, like how, but how broad could you take this? And how are you thinking about future? Um, like how, what are the edges? Where could you go? This is our board discussion every quarter. Um, I think where we are today is that you're really laser focused on this acquisition. And so we like to think, okay, what would the acquirer really care about? You know, if it's Reynolds, do they care if we have a big reusables business? Like, or is it just like go hard and in tableware? And so the answer usually puts back to like, okay, it's all about growth and tableware, but let's use innovation for discovery and brand building and kind of like that marketing carrot because it's the same we're dealing with this we're not going outside of our it's our current supply chain we're just making different products we can do really small test runs and be like hey we're making a reusable whatever <laughs> and and let's see if it if it moves and let's test it in ecom and let's see how it goes i just think it's like the focus thing and how do we how do we continue to kind of like stay in our lane and show we'd be really significant growth in that lane. So it's, I don't know me. I'm, I'm a designer. I love new things and the shiny fun stuff, but we're seeing like, for example, like we just launched these family size, large format counts of plates and they're like crushing and it's not exciting, but it's like we're, they're quickly becoming our number one and two SKUs and like, wow, we can do that in every, you know, in every class of, trade and so I don't know that's usually where the team gets pushed and I'm always like well, what about this mm -hmm. <laughs> so I like to have that sort of fun side but we're we are a bit limited short answer long long answer to to the question got it yeah thank you yeah thank you Awesome. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna cap things there just due to time, but really really informative Q and A session there. And uh, again, great presentation, Lauren. You have a great company and, and impressive results to back it up. So thanks again for coming on and for presenting here. And of course, if there's any additional questions after the fact, we'll we'll be sure to connect you. Thanks so much. Appreciate the time, guys. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Lauren.
Bye. Bye. Okay, so we are going to bring up Oleg from Jammy. And while we're doing that, just gonna toss um, a credit link in the chat. We normally have a lot of e-commerce companies that tune into this. Oleg, who's gonna come up on stage actually right now is one of our customers at Gorgeous. If you're interested in, uh, in checking it out, just click that link and uh, you'll get your second month free. How's that for a transition? Oleg, how's it going? Uh, hi, hi guys. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Uh, cool, so let's get started then. Uh, let me share my screen please. All right, so I hope it's there. Awesome, yeah, we can see it. Uh, so I'm gonna start the timer, Oleg, you have 10 minutes. Perfect, perfect. All right, cool, so uh, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Oleg, I'm CEO and co-founder of Jamie Instruments. Uh, we make digital guitars, uh, guitar-shaped music controllers for hobby and semi-pro music producers. Uh, just to give you a, a bit of a background on the problem that our product solves. Uh, so if you are, mm, a music producer uh, in 2020, you basically have to have two things only. First would be the uh, software, the special music production software that you would run on your PC. And the second would be a physical keyboard controller that you will use, connect to the software to translate the notes and uh, your musical ideas into the actual sound. Uh, that's how the industry works. Uh, but that being said, uh, over 50% of uh, all the musicians worldwide uh, of, of any kind of uh, level of skill uh, are actually guitarists. Uh, so that means that they are uh, either cannot play keyboard at all or can play but very limited, uh, on, on very limited skill level. Uh, to us, that seems pretty unfair uh, because most of our team and myself are guitarists. Uh, and basically that situation forces us and other people who are guitar first uh, to either uh, create music in a language that they are not uh, fluent in, or uh, spend another two to three years uh, learning another musical instrument, which would be a complete waste of time. Uh, so uh, that's why we created uh, Jemmy, a stringed and guitar-shaped music controller for guitarists of any level and skill uh, who want to create music uh, using their own language, uh, guitar uh, language, basically. Uh, I also deeply believe that uh, in the near future, uh, the guitars, uh, digital guitars will repeat the history of the digital keyboard, uh, which appeared decades ago uh, and kind of uh, outshadowed their predecessor uh, acoustic keyboards uh, and influenced deeply the music scene and the culture overall. Uh, and we, of course, want our product to be a driving force of the change for the guitar world as well. Uh, we're proud that we have already uh, 40, 100 uh, musicians and producers uh, and hobby guitarists uh, joining the community and supporting us on that mission. Uh, that being said, uh, we also see a significant business opportunity in the, in the area. Uh, there are millions of people who are already, already uh, producing music uh, on a hobby or professional level, but there are tens of millions of people who are actually wanted to uh, start doing that as a hobby uh, or as a future full-time job. So that's a uh, pretty big of a market. Uh, also a significant benchmark that we uh, track for, for ourselves is the amount of the key keyboard controllers or digital keyboards that are sold each year uh, worldwide. That's uh, about 2 million uh, units per year. 
uh, and we expect that uh, the digital guitars uh, will reach at least the same uh, or comparable numbers in the near future. Also, the momentum uh, is quite right for us because uh, the digital production software is also growing quite rapidly and it's expected to grow even faster in the coming years, creating a big space uh, for um, other innovative uh, controllers uh, and guitars like, like the Emmy. Uh, last but not least, uh, according to our research, uh, the typical user of a musical instrument, the typical user uh, from this market, spends a lot, uh, around thousand units, thousand uh, tours uh, per year on music-related products, which creates a great uh, buying power and, and opportunity for the market as well. Uh, as for our history as a company, we started in 2017 uh, with a simple idea of creating a digital guitar, uh, compact digital guitar. Uh, we kind of validated that idea, uh, validated the early demand for the product on Indiegogo. Uh, then we faced a lot of challenges that any hardware startup and business would face. Uh, we've been uh, doing the manufacturing setup. Uh, it took us about a year. During that year, we've uh, Owned the technology that, uh, that is built in in Jamie, uh, which later got patented and secured. Also, during the period, we're proud to say that we were awarded with the Best in Show NAM Award, uh, which is the biggest trade show uh, in the US and I think in the world, uh, which recognized the innovative potential of the product that we're building. Uh, in 2019, we finally launched the full scale mass production. Uh, and started worldwide sales, uh, mostly focusing on direct-to-consumer channel, or basically selling DTC. Uh, by beginning of the, this year, we've uh, finally reached 1 million uh, mark in revenue and started uh, pursuing the strategy of diversification. Uh, I, would, I would talk about briefly uh, in, in a few minutes. Uh, but basically, uh, uh, in the middle of the year, we launched the next generation product, which is Jamie E. On Kickstarter, uh, we raised more than 200,000 uh, in less than a month uh, in a very tough economical and social conditions. So we're kind of proud of, of the results that we get there. Uh, and now we think we are well positioned to scale. Uh, and I, I'm going to talk about uh, three main uh, growth opportunities that we see for the company and then uh, on how those uh, opportunities reflect on the financials. Uh, so the first one is the uh, new market. Uh, so just recently, about a month ago, uh, we entered the Japan market um, uh, with a campaign which turned out to be very profitable and successful. Unlike uh, like typical Kickstarter campaign or any investor crowdfunding campaign, uh, we didn't do any uh, advanced investment in the marketing. Uh, and basically, it was one of the most effective uh, campaigns we did ever. Uh, which show the potential of the market and also the potential of entering uh, new segments and, and new markets across the world. So we expect to continue penetrate and saturate uh, in Japan, but of course we will uh, basically use this strategy and tactic uh, to launch in new markets like Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, uh, China, and, and other markets that we expect uh, would have a significant demand for the product like, like Jamie. Uh, the next uh, growth uh, factor for us is this uh, new model that, that we launched through Kickstarter. Aside from improving the product itself with the enhanced technology and economics and other stuff, uh, we also improved the unit economics that we have. 
so we managed to uh, lower the production cost almost in half uh, and also lower the retail price uh, entering the lower price segment and basically making the product much more affordable and uh, expanding our uh, addressable market with that. Uh, and of course, we have uh, managed to significantly increase the profit per unit. Uh, it's expected to be more than uh, 100 uh, per unit uh, and also doubling down on our strategy on, on accessories. Like for instance, uh, during the Kickstarter campaign, we managed uh, to have almost 50% attachment rate for the high margin accessories that uh, we are selling with, with, with the new model, uh, which on average adds around 45 uh, US dollars in profit per unit. Uh, and basically that's uh, the new markets, uh, the uh, growing of the sales and uh, bottom line is not just uh, one, one single shot and uh, pursuing the business model of one, one sale, but uh, what we're trying to, to do actually is to uh, increase our reach and reach as many people as possible to then involve them in our software ecosystem. So uh, right now we are having three domains there. First is the mobile apps uh, on Android and iOS. Second is the VST plugins, which are basically software pieces that are running on, on the musical production software. Uh, and the third one is the web portal, which uh, helps you not only to uh, learn the guitar basics, if you're still a guitar newbie, uh, but also learn the basics of the music production and help you to uh, pursue the dream of uh, creating your own music. Uh, so we expect that uh, with these services, if we will uh, make uh, our customers, uh, we will reach our user base, uh, that will help us to create additional value services uh, through that uh, channels and through those domains, uh, bring more value to the customers, and of course, uh, bring uh, additional revenue uh, to, to, to the company. Uh, on the financial side, uh, that's how our three-year plan, uh, three-year financial plan looks like. So in 2019, uh, as I said, we were mostly doing DTC sales. Uh, in this year, we've uh, gradually uh, increased uh, the sales through the direct channel, but uh, we also open up uh, new markets and wholesale channels, and also the crowdfunding campaign that I mentioned. Uh, and the next year will mark uh, the year where, where we will uh, reach the uh, profitability uh, with the additional layer of revenue generated from this uh, software uh, enhancement that we are going to launch and also from gradually increasing the uh, sales through every channel that we, that we are doing right now. Uh, so in a nutshell, the financial plan is to do the channel diversification and uh, improve the bottom line uh, for the company. From the team perspective, we have a great uh, people on board uh, who are covering the most crucial domains uh, for the business, uh, that being hardware, uh, software development, and sales and marketing. And overall, we have 12 people uh, working on the team full-time. Uh, uh, so that's, that's about it about us. Uh, I had to take any questions. Awesome, thanks a lot, Oleg. Uh, obviously, super cool product and company and brand. Great presentation, uh, as with the other two. So we'll open up uh, to the floor. Thanks for presenting. Very cool. I'm very musically not talented, so I should invest in that. <laughs> um, I had a question, actually, about the software component. 
Have you guys thought about developing any sort of hardware or that it can you could sell the software alone without selling the the guitar um, hero piece for people who might already have an instrument and what that would look like or what your decision making was about that? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's actually the part of the strategy. But uh, the problem with doing that on an early stage is that you would probably uh, risk losing the customer if you would uh, not if he wouldn't have the hardware uh, in front of him uh, that would remain about the brand and uh, other offerings that we might do in the future. So uh, we do indeed uh, expect our software to be used not only with our hardware in the future. Uh, but what we wanted to start with is the, the deep uh, integration between our own hardware and our own software to make sure that we are providing the best uh, customer experience we possibly could. Uh, Oleg, this is Adam. Um, similar to Hannah, I know I'm not musically inclined, nor do I know much about this category, but super cool. Um, and seems like you're building something um, pretty interesting. You mentioned uh, uh, one of my questions is sort of around the space and why why people haven't created. So I think you, you made a comment around um, synthesizers for keyboards have been developed and that's sort of changing that the landscape for those musicians but not for guitarists and it, so like why again I don't know much about this category but like why is that and what are you seeing in the market that apparently these these other folks are not uh, so I think there is a combination of factors playing in our in our favor uh, the first would be the just the gradual advance of technology overall. So we are able to create uh, pretty affordable MIDI controllers, uh, which uh, would cost like tens of thousands of dollars uh, 10 years ago. And we also are making them pretty comp compact and not a big uh, like musical instrument. Uh, the second would be the market uh, penetration of uh, the music production software. So uh, like five years ago, it was like maybe million, a uh, couple of million people using uh, uh, all of the software from the different manufacturers combined, but now it's tens of millions of uh, copies sold each year for from different brands. So this category obviously grows pretty fast, uh, and uh, people uh, who are using that software, the only missing component that, that they should have is the hardware controller, like Jamie, that would help them to create music in a, in a language that they speak, uh, the guitar language. Got it. Um, I had a question about your supply chain because obviously a lot of your audience and customers are in Asia. Where do you currently ship out of and how do you handle that to manage cost? Uh, so that's been a challenge for the uh, recent years, of course, uh, and that gradually improves um, with the scale. So uh, right now we're manufacturing in Shenzhen in China uh, and we have the main fulfillment center uh, out of Hong Kong. Uh, so basically, we use it for all worldwide shipments except US. Uh, in the US, we have a different fulfillment center that we do injection shipment to, and then uh, do last mile shipment for, for, from that fulfillment center. So that helps us to lower the cost significantly, but also create some additional uh, cash uh, burden uh, that we have to invest more in inventory in advance. Uh, but we still uh, expect to pursue the strategy also for Europe sales and also for uh, additional uh, warehousing uh, capabilities in Japan. 
to make sure that we can uh, serve customers in a fast way and also in an efficient, cost-efficient way for us. Were you able to walk through some of the uh, cost improvements from the old model to the new model? Uh, yep. So, uh, just not to be super boring uh, on the technical side, uh, I would just uh, say that uh, first of all, we've uh, managed to uh, get rid of the electronics that was um, uh, that was too uh, advanced for the uh, algorithms and uh, applications that we've used it. So we've kind of decreased that uh, without any uh, impact on, on the product quality. Uh, and also with the experience, uh, we learned how, how to do that in a most efficient way. Uh, then we simplified, uh, again, from the experience that we had with the previous model, we simplified a lot of mechanical components, uh, which allowed us to have uh, them much less in, in, in quantities. Uh, so it's easier to assemble the product and it's easier to produce the practical components for it. So it decreases the cost dramatically as well. Uh, we also realized, so in the, the first model, what we had uh, is the onboard sound synthesizer. So you could use Jamie not only as a controller with the software, you just could plug your earphones in and play uh, like a regular guitar. Uh, but that electronics component and, and uh, plastical component attached to it was pretty expensive. And what we realized that the customers mostly want Jamie as the MIDI controller and that don't use those features. So we decided to uh get rid of it for the next model and last but not least is the strategy that we did for the accessories because in the first model all of the accessories was included in the box uh but for the next generation model what we decided to is to uh, have them uh, as a add -on accessory uh with additional marginality uh, attached to it which helped the pro uh, the unit economics and also helped to uh, for the cu customers to uh, pick the right uh, set of accessories and uh, what they need actually f f from the Jamie uh, during the purchase. Great, thank you. Oleg, how are you driving awareness of what you're building among the consumers? So that's a great question. Uh, so number one thing for us was the influencer marketing. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, if you go to YouTube and just uh, type in Jamie guitar, you would find a lot of uh, reviews and different uh, covers and uh, videos uh, created on Jamie uh, from some of the most influential uh, guitarists and musicians on YouTube. So that was one of the biggest channel of driving awareness for us. Uh, second was also is the crowdfunding campaign, which usually creates this marketing event, which spreads out uh, dramatically uh, even beyond the category that we are targeting in. Uh, and what we are doing right now is trying to uh, get some more uh, serious musicians on board who are uh, have already their audience uh, and following uh, and uh, make sure that they can create their music or part of their music with the Jamie. So that would help the drive the awareness even beyond that. Okay. Yeah, we got we have a couple more minutes. If anyone wants to jump in with a final thought here. Okay. Okay, we'll end it there. Well, that was really well presented, Oleg, and 
everyone had to say this, including people in the chat. There's very interesting products here that not a lot of people know about, especially for those that aren't uh, musically inclined. So um, really appreciate you being on and presenting the brand. Phenomenal, great Q&A period again too. Uh, so we'll we'll kick you off stage for now and then uh, we're gonna announce a winner in about a minute and we'll communicate the benefits to you as well as Lauren and Allie uh, after the show. Thanks a lot, Oleg. See you in a bit. Bye. Bye. Okay. So just chatting with the panel offline and a uh, very close race as usual, but it sounds like it's going to be a repurposed win for Lauren. Uh, really well presented brand. And obviously they have the success and the numbers to back it up. And she's got a really sound plan about how the next two to three years are going to look for her and the company. So congrats to Lauren um, and also congrats to Ali and, and Eric from Queen and Oleg from Jamie as well. Really well presented brands and companies. Uh, and we'll be able to communicate the benefits to the brands uh, as soon as this show ends and I'll get an email out. Uh, thanks for everyone that tuned in and uh, thanks to the panel as well for coming on to judge this. And obviously this is the sixth episode. We like to do this every three weeks or so. So Adam from uh, M13, Stephen from Echo and Hannah from Graycroft. Really appreciate you guys dedicating your time here today and, uh, and for judging the competition. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Going to end the webinar now. Thanks for everyone that tuned in and uh, we'll be in touch with the recording after the fact. Thank you.